value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. The information in this podcast is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to an authorised financial advisor. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future returns. Okay, I'd like to welcome everybody to this Master Investor webinar entitled Counting the Cost of Coronavirus, Will Markets Ever Be the Same Again? Thank you all for joining us today and I hope you're all in good health and keeping yourselves safe in what is a very strange and difficult time for everybody. Just to say we are at the mercy of technology, but um, please do bear with us um, as this is a live webinar. Please keep your questions coming in as the discussion unfolds and there will be a Q&A session at the end. Um, we've got a lot to cover today, but for those of you that want to delve into the topics that we talk about in a bit more detail, we do have a special report written by Victor and myself, which is available for purchase on the Master Investor website. So please do go over to the website and take a look at that once we've finished. So to kick off, I'd like to start with a few introductions. My name is James Faulkner. I'm the editor of Master Investor. I'm joined by Jim Mellon, who really needs no introduction, but he's a, a very highly successful and um, distinguished private investor in the UK and obviously a familiar face to those of you that attend the show every year. And by the way, the Master Investor Show has been rescheduled for the 5th of December this year. Victor Hill is a financial economist and consultant with extensive experience in investment banking and fund management. His career includes stints at JP Morgan and World Bank IFC. And these days he writes regularly for Master Investor. Last but not least, James Ferguson is the founding partner of Macro Strategy Partnership, which provides independent research to over 120 institutions globally. Kick off then, I'd like to ask Victor to uh, give us a, a brief overview of the, the current situation in terms of the, the fight against the virus, because really everything kind of stems from that situation. So over to you, Victor. Okay, th- thank you, James, for that introduction. Um, I have to confess I'm having slight audio problems, but um, I, 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 I'll just have to bear with it. I've got you basically in one ear right now, but I can hear you. Well, look, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that uh, we are very near the peak in terms of the number of new cases diagnosed, and that will translate into a peak in terms of the total fatalities in a space of 12 days to two weeks. So that um, all the main, uh, the worst affected European countries, namely France, UK, Italy, Spain, will hopefully experience a downturn in the level of fatalities in the next two to three weeks. And that will be obviously a cause for rejoicing because every fatality is is a tragedy. But the bad news is that we cannot infer from that that the lockdowns will be entirely relaxed. Indeed, they will have to continue for some time to come. And I'll just say uh, very briefly why. I don't want to get too much into the technical side and to the epidemiology, which is not really my sphere of expertise anyway. But I've benefited from being sent um, some models by a, a brilliant young economist showing that um, you can approximate the R0 value of this particular virus by looking at the five-day rolling uh, cases which have been uh, recorded as a ratio of the total new cases being recorded on a daily basis. Now, it's five-day because basically the virus works in five-day bursts 
most of the transmission occurs within five days of a person actually uh, contracting the virus. Now, um, if, if, if you look at this, it's, it's well understood that we're on the downward trend because the R0 value has been reduced to one. Now, the R0 value, as many of you will know, is the metric of how contagious this thing is. So if it's got a value of four, which was probably the case at the beginning of the outbreak back in mid-February, that means for every one person who contracts the virus, four people will catch it from them. Now, it looks like we've got it down through a process of social distancing and lockdowns to about one now in the UK. And I just saw some figures before we came on air. Um, in France, they're looking at a, an R0 value of 0.6. So in essence, the lockdowns have worked as a way of containing the spread of the virus. From here on in, once the R0 value goes much below one, the virus basically peters out eventually. It, in, it's, it still continues to perpetuate itself, but in, in more and more decreasing numbers. Now, if you just suddenly uh, allow people to go back to normal life, so they all come out blinking into the sunshine, rubbing their eyes, and go back to the pubs and the restaurants and the gyms and the parks, that R0 value will suddenly shoot up again, with the result that there will be a second wave. So there is a critical decision to be made by the politicians in all of the leading countries as to when exactly the lockdown is relaxed and how gradually you relax it. I'll just say very quickly, if you look at New Zealand, which in my view is a case study in how to manage a pandemic, from the outset, they've had four levels of lockdown. And every New Zealand family knows, because they have a chart on their wall, which has been sent to them by the government, where they are in the lockdown level and what will happen in terms of the next lockdown level. They're at level four, which is basically the most rigid lockdown level, but they're expecting to move to level three any day now. In fact, it might have been announced earlier today. So um, how far do we go? Well, in terms of social distancing, I think this is going to be almost indefinite. When I next meet you, Jim, I don't think we'll be shaking hands anymore. You know, I shall probably do a, a namaste, the Indian style. I really think this is going to have a huge impact on, on social life and social behavior, and particularly for more vulnerable and more elderly folk and for the, the, the older demographic. I mean, I know people in their 70s who've said to me, you know, they'll probably never go out again. Oh, they, they might go out, but they, probably, they won't go down to the re uh, book a table at a restaurant. So One can I just put this out to yeah, the rest of the panel then? Are we in agreement that to some extent social distancing and even lockdowns are going to continue into the into the future, Jim? Uh, yeah, I hope they do. I quite like the idea of people distancing themselves in shops and other places. I think <laughs> idea. I know that James uh, agrees with me on this one because we've shared many a, a good time in one of those establishments, but the thing that I miss most is the pub culture of the UK. Uh, and it's a, it's a real shame that the pubs will be the last to open, according to the kind of rumour mill that we, we all live off at the moment. However, no, I think the social distancing will continue. I take slight exception, not exception, but slight mild disagreement with Victor. I think we're well past the peak, actually. I think the UK has peaked maybe a week ago or so, that it could be possible that in two to three weeks' time, some restoration of normality 
is going to happen. In any case, it needs to happen. We can't keep on crunching the economy and people like they are in the United States will start rebelling. And uh, so, you know, two to three weeks more of this and, uh, you know, back to some sort of normality. And when when you say some sort of normality, Jim, can you foresee a time when... Um, when when life returns to as it was before before the crisis, or do we always have some kind of you know some kind of restrictions in place to deal with this thing well into the future? Well, I mean, you take the nineteen nineteen, the end thereof of the flu epidemic, then the Spanish flu epidemic, and uh, the the ten years after that were the big party years before the Great Depression, and uh, they were all flapping around and, you know, the jazz music and all that sort of stuff was going on then. So they moved back into full gear gear pretty quickly. And I imagine the same will happen to us. I don't know anything about herd immunity, which we've all read about. I don't know if if it's being developed in Britain or not. I don't know what the the rate of, uh, of disease penetration is. We just don't have the right testing. I will say, however, you don't want to get it. My sister had it. Uh, she's only just now recovering. That's 18 days lying on her uh, bed, not being able to get out of bed. She's a frontline doctor. So you absolutely don't want to get it. And the long-term consequences of getting it are very bad. There's fibrosis in the lungs, there's long-term lung damage, and there may even be cognitive damage. So do whatever you can to avoid it. It's, it's a horrible disease. And one of the reasons why it's such a subtle killer is that it remains asymptomatic in so many people. And so there are so many people out there who you, you wouldn't know that they have it, but can nevertheless transmit it. And yet for those who are vulnerable, who have underlying conditions, it results in all kinds of terrible um, you know, uh, respiratory um, problems. Given what we know about the, the virus, or what we don't know, in fact, can we even begin to forecast the shape of the recovery in terms of whether the recovery is a, a V-shaped or a U-shaped recovery? Can we even begin to make assumptions about that at this point obviously that the stock market seems to be thinking we're going to have quite a sharp recovery doesn't it looking at the uh, S&P 500 well I mean I, I read uh, all sorts of uh, stuff on this uh, James is a uh, Ferguson who is, is a much better person to comment on this but my general view is that the British government has probably done the right thing by keeping uh, people on a kind of quasi payroll even if they're not allowed to uh, work for instance I'm sitting in the Isle of Man at the moment in one of our hotels and we've kept all the staff on and uh, because we know that you know in a month or two's time that it'll be back to normal and we, we don't want to lose the staff and I think that's a better strategy than has been employed in the United States where there's now 20 odd million people who are on the unemployment uh, registers in the last month or so. So I think the country will be ready to go back. Uh, there will be some changes to the economy you know the, what we're doing now on Zoom is probably going to be a permanent fixture Uh, Maybe there'll be a reduction in air travel. But some of the weak incumbent companies, uh, like Virgin as an example in the airline industry, were being drummed out of business. And the the remaining companies, like IAG owner of British Airways, will do very well. So that's one of the reasons why the stock market in these hospitality transport type companies has been going up recently, because they're anticipating the return and airfares will be three times as high as they were before the coronavirus. I think also you ought to um, think about differentiating between the economy and the financial markets. Because from an economy point of view, what little we know about, as Jim alludes to the fact, we haven't actually seen a randomized antibody testing anywhere in the world except China, and China haven't told us what the results were, although they are going back to work. 
So we just don't know how prevalent um, this disease is. And the WHO yesterday said <clears throat> that two to three percent of the population um, have antibodies. I don't know how they know that since we haven't had any antibody tests approved yet. But let's just say for the sake of argument that's true and, and that herd immunity is, as they tell us, around about 60 percent, then you can see that we're still a long, long way from herd immunity. So what is likely and unusual, if you can say such things about these, um, the profile of these sorts of pandemics, is that you have uh, an up wave, you have social distancing and lockdown, what they call non-pharmaceutical interventions. That brings it back under control. You wait and then you let everybody out again because they're all champing at the bit and getting very frustrated. But of course, unless you have made sure that there are absolutely zero people wandering around asymptomatically uh, or otherwise with the disease, which you just can't do now it's gone global, then you're going to get another wave. And it's normal for a variety of slightly epidemiological reasons to do with, with uh, not allowing the, the milder strains out and free-flowing that the second wave can be worse than the first wave. So the first thing I'd say from, a, from an economic point of view is that we're almost definitely going to be allowed out because the economy just can't take this lockdown. But the consequence of that is that we're almost definitely going to have another wave. If you look at the original Neil Ferguson study from Imperial College, he actually has a sort of theoretic sort of um, diorama um, chart, but he shows half a dozen uh, lockdowns spread out over 18 months. So if you were only thinking from, from a medical point of view, you'd be looking at a series of lockdowns, and they haven't made much of a secret about this. And so I think that's probably what you should bear in mind, that you know we're not one and done on lockdowns. But that's not the same thing as saying that we won't have potentially a V-shaped recovery in terms of um, financial markets. And the reason for that is that this, economically speaking, this is entirely self-inflicted in that government has decided to go via the lockdown route as opposed to the, uh, the herd immunity um, route. Uh, and that therefore government is trying with various degrees of success and uh, alacrity to um, compensate people who are suffering. Um, for example, covering wages and giving interest-free uh, loans to businesses, etc. Now, as long as the governments in the in the world pump in more money than um, is required, well, it's absolutely easy to do, but more money than would be being naturally sucked out by the deflationary activity, then that money will have to find somewhere to go. It, it is potentially very inflationary. It is potentially going to go more towards, therefore, risk assets and precious metals than it will towards bonds. Uh, and it will basically be looking for a home that is out with whatever country is diluting its currency in this aggressive way. So worth bearing in mind, as is so often the case, that the, the markets may not move and behave in the same way as the economy. But I think the economy's shape is probably W, not, not UV or L. And by that, we mean a, a double-dip recession, James. By that, I mean possibly a triple or quadruple dip recession. I mean, a lot of it depends on, on, you know, how the, at some stage, the politicians are going to come up against uh, a very strong fight, a fight back. I mean, it's interesting to look at the narrative in the UK. The BBC is still running absolutely the narrative of, you know, the frontline workers are the heroes against uh, an absolutely intractable disease, which is laying waste to the country. But that's not statistically quite correct. There's only one person who's commented even on what's happened to um, the actual death numbers. And the death numbers in the UK are down on this year from a seasonal point of view. We have a lot of uh, empty beds. Um, and although resources are being targeted towards this, which is, as everyone's pointed out, an extremely nasty 
uh, illness. There are lots of very nasty illnesses out there. And there will be people who will start to argue as soon as they've got some antibody data behind them that actually this is nothing. I mean, the WHO, the head of the WHO only a month ago claimed in a speech that the death rate is 3.4%. That's complete nonsense. We, we know it's nonsense. We don't know exactly what it is because we don't know what the infection, underlying infection rate is. But certainly, if you look at uh, localized experiments like Diamond Princess and others, it looks like it's probably something like sub 1%. By the way, seasonal flu is about 0.1%. So it could still be 10 times worse than seasonal flu and affecting 10 times more people. So we're not downgrading how big a problem it is. But I am suggesting that, um, that the, the initial guidance by, from some quarters, Imperial College, World Health Organization and others, has been somewhat alarmist. And there will be a natural pushback against that when that narrative starts to, to be more prevalent. So what, watching what governments do will depend on their analysis of, of whether there's more votes in shutting down or more votes in, in not shutting down. And that's a hard one call. James, herd immunity was never a viable strategy from a political point of view. I mean, there would have been bodies in the streets. It just wouldn't have worked. People would not have swallowed it. The government would have become under fire almost immediately. Well, there's a slight problem. Yeah. The, uh, the alternative to herd immunity is a vaccine. Well, the, the alternative, yeah. two alternatives are total lockdown um, on and off for two years or well, yeah. forever almost, or a vaccine. Yeah. Now, um, no vaccines for, against coronaviruses have ever been invented. And the ones that have been trialed on animals killed the animals. So the problem with the vaccine is that it's extremely hard. They've only just isolated one of the important molecules in the SARS uh, mm. vaccine. And that's nearly 20 years ago now. So waiting for a yeah. vaccine is, is, is optimism triumphing over the evidence. Well, it depends who you speak to. I mean, Bill Gates thinks it's feasible within 18 months, but not before, because it's got to be tested thoroughly, obviously. There are, there are such propositions around, if you can believe them. But um, there is a school of thought that, you know, you will never have a return to normality until such point as there is a viable vaccine readily available by the millions and billions. And that's not going to be for two years at the most optimistic. So, uh, James Ferguson, you're looking at a, a, a W-shaped recovery. Well, do you really think that football matches will, will resume uh, come next month, that the season will, 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 will go back to normal in May and, and June? I mean, the, the main objective is to avoid large gatherings of people where this thing uh, it, it multiplies automatically. I mean, in hindsight, it was very regrettable to allow the Cheltenham Festival to have taken place. That was 10th to the 13th of March. And the, the Greeks were closing down public events in late February. So, you, you know, the, the, the UK government was actually very slow off the mark here. And we're, we're several weeks behind uh, our European neighbours in terms of the lockdown. I, I don't think that the lockdown stage two will be very much different from lockdown stage one. I think you'll see young adults going back to work, um, but a lot of people will remain in isolation. It, uh, I think there's some, there's some agreement amongst the panel in terms of, uh, I think, People accept that these measures will be with us in some shape or form for the foreseeable future. But I just wondered, what does the panel think in terms of the changes to people's behaviour, the changes to working patterns and things like that? Are there any themes that the panel could see kind of developing into more long-term structural trends in future? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to take a stab at that one first, if I may, James, because 
I think, uh, you know, there are some peripheral themes here. One is that people have got used to working at home and in some cases are more productive at home. But obviously, it only applies to about 40% of the participants in the workforce. Others have to go out to work. So people in supermarkets or in the shops that are actually not open at the moment or in many walks of life, you actually have to be with people in an office or in a hospital or in something like that. And that doesn't apply therefore to 60% of the population. But for that 40%, the attractions for their companies and for themselves to maybe work two days a week at home and then three days a week in a shared office accommodation might be of interest. And we all know that um, WeWork is on the ropes, but it doesn't mean that the concept of WeWork or Spaces or IWG isn't a good one. And it's been reinforced by what's happened in the last few weeks, uh, really around the world. So I, I wouldn't necessarily discount that. On a long, longer term basis, where does this pandemic, like all the other pandemics, come from? It comes from agricultural practices, mostly emanating out of China. I mean, let's, let's you know, call a spade a spade. That's what it is. This coincides with one of our great themes, which is the clean meat revolution. The idea that you can grow uh, plants to be formed into meat substitutes, and they're already well in the market, you know, Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, those sort of things are already out there and being sold in large quantities. But coming up behind it is the cultured meat, if you want to call it that, cultured byproduct like dairy products or leather uh, industry that is now attracting a great deal of attention and money, which I'm very, very optimistic about. And it's exactly what we need in the current environment. We face a climate crisis. I don't think many people will dispute that. This goes some of the way to solving it, since animals account for more emissions uh, than any other factor in, 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 in the world in terms of uh, emitting uh, bad gases into the atmosphere, causing climate change. It is also uh, related to human health and that antibiotic use in farm animals, particularly in China, is out of control. And the next pandemic may be a, uh, one related to antibiotics, uh, in other words, a microbial infection as opposed to a viral infection, which would be even worse than what we have today, and that has to be addressed. It relates to cruelty to animals, agricultural practices, intensive farming, and all that sort of stuff, and the very inefficient conversion of protein to protein using animals as a medium. Plus, on top of that, you've got vast quantities of water used to produce uh, traditional agricultural animal products. So all sorts of reasons this process will accelerate. You and I, if we go to the supermarket and there's an opportunity to buy a clean engineered meat without any of the bad stuff in it, without contamination, uh, without the possibility that it's um, a carrier of some form of potential pandemic or that's got too many antibiotics or hormones in it or that it represents cruelty, we'll opt for the engineered meat. And that will happen in the next 10 or so years. So this will accelerate the process of that uh, industry. Now, it is the case that in China, if one person gets a pandemic disease, it can spread all around the world, as we've seen. So we must, we shouldn't ask for war reparations as some have from China. We would, must work with the Chinese to eliminate the ways in which they husband animals and they cultivate or they cull wildlife and sell it in markets, because that is the source of all this trouble that we've got at the moment. It needs to be directly dealt with uh, at the point where it started. Victor, would you like to... Um, to <coughs> well, I, I agree with a number of things before. that Jim has said. I mean, relations with China going forward are going to have to be reset. 
And this has all kinds of implications. And I think that we're already seeing a, a tendency to reshore or deglobalize and bring back production from China. Uh, I think in our report that um, James, you and I wrote, um, which was published last week, we were talking about these essential pharmaceutical agents which are used to build vaccines and other pharmaceutical products. And you have Sanofi, the largest um, uh, vaccine producer in the world, along with GSK, already talking about reshoring some of these products uh, to Europe. And yes, I agree that um, the way we husband animals, the way we the way we grow our food is going to become increasingly prominent, particularly in the context of uh, climate change. But um, I think it'll have a job persuading the Chinese of our point of view. They're not really particularly amenable to influence. They won't even close their so-called wet markets. Now, there's just one other thing I'd like to say. This whole question of the the V-shape, the U-shape, the L-shape, the W-shaped recession... Even if there was a major relaxation in lockdowns come May, June, uh, people will emerge from this with much reduced wealth, feeling the pinch, uh, with their savings uh, very much under strain. Many people will have had to cut back. There will be a huge uh, decline, a huge uh, disincentive on uh, new consumption. Possibly people will want to go on holidays, that's true albeit that a lot of them will be nervous about, you know, the, the, the hygiene aspect. And referring to a, a very interesting point Jim made about airlines, I note that um, EasyJet has announced they're going to leave the middle seat free so as to observe social distancing in the future. Well, the obvious implication of that is that um, there aren't going to be any more cheap tickets anymore. So, you know, our £25 ticket down to... Malaga uh, will no longer be available. So for starters, the age of cheap air travel is probably over. And that, that has all kinds of, 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 of ramifications, not least in terms of, of staycations. I think people will be traveling less, working at home, they will be commuting less, um, but they will also want to probably um, have holidays um, much closer to home than they have done hitherto. So I think we have to look at changes in consumer behavior resulting from what has happened and the impact on consumption due to the fact that effectively two months GDP has been lost or will have been lost by the time this is over. So even if you can renormalize the economy, you have uh, huge additional levels of debt and you also have a, a hole in government finances of, 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 of massive proportions. So there's the whole issue of how the government is going to finance the it's probably something like 150 billion pounds fiscal deficit in the case of the UK, which is going to arise uh, by next year. So I just want to move on to the outlook for the equity markets, because given what we've just been talking about, is now the time to look for the bargains in terms of the cyclical stocks that have really been hit the hardest? Or should we be looking at the stocks that are going to benefit from these longer-term themes in future and the more sort of defensive names out there? Jim? Okay, I read a very interesting article today. I can't remember who it was by, but I'm going to kind of quasi-plagiarise it as I normally do. But that was that, you know, the FANG stocks have been 
relatively robust in this period, largely, I would say, due to the Amazon component of them, because, you know, Amazon's become basically a utility with a, for, for many people around the world. And some people think that that will continue because that will be the new trend, that the, you know, the internet-related stocks will do incredibly well. And you know that Zoom, what we're using on this webinar at the moment, uh, the share price has gone up dramatically to the point where I believe it has a market cap bigger than all the US airlines combined. I think we should do the opposite, and that is that we should indeed look at the cyclical stocks. Now, some of those cyclical stocks are fairly obvious, you know, the airlines, the hotels, the ones that have been really badly hit in this, uh, in this downturn. They're already going up a bit because they're anticipating that things might get better. And I, someone asked a very good question on this uh, screen uh, earlier on, which was, if people don't travel as much, why would air tickets go up? And it's back to what Victor said, because there will be just two seats out of every three in a row that will be occupied. And there are people who are compelled and very motivated to travel who will pay much higher prices to travel. So the airlines, in some cases, particularly if a lot of them go bust, will do quite well. But I think the cyclical stocks to look at at the moment are those related to China. And that includes Australian mining stocks, for instance. I love gold, but I'm leaving gold to one side. We're talking about iron ore. We're talking about uh, copper. We're talking about the things that did very well in the big China boom. And China is coming out of this period. It doesn't have the same export potential that it did because the Western consumers are not able to buy as many Chinese goods, even if they wanted to, as before. So I think it will internalize its economy with massive, massive stimulus. And one of the effects of that will be to drive up the price of, which are very depressed at the moment, things like copper, nickel, and uh, iron ore, coal, etc. And so I would look for those. And uh, strongest among those, I think, are very, uh, very good buys at the moment. What does the panel think about the prospects for the next bull market, given the uh, huge amount of monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus that we've just seen? And especially now we're looking at effectively the monetization of debt on a mass scale. What implications does that have for the for the markets over the long run and um i I think i'd like to go to james first on this one well i mean um luckily because otherwise we'd probably just be speculating we've had a relatively recent example of this with qe um qe was misrepresented by many people it wasn't uh, anything to do with bailing out the banks it was to bail out us given the fact that the banks were going to have to take five or six years to repair their own balance sheets And so what they did was they pumped money directly into the economy and that money rushed around looking for places to go. Now, famously, well, uh, typically the banks are uh, in charge of of, of providing credit to Main Street. And the problem was that the banks were off the board um, before, um, during the the Great Recession. Um, And so um, that sort of really channeled all the, the money really into the financial markets. This time, the banks are much, much more robust, maybe not in Europe, but certainly in America and to a slightly lesser extent, but only slightly in the UK. Banks are, well, in America, they have twice as much liquidity and three times as much capital as they had going into the financial crisis. So they're a completely different kettle of fish. The problem is that they still aren't necessarily in a very good position to channel credit to the real economy, to Main Street, as instructed by government because government at the same time is basically shutting down most of Main Street. So that still leaves all this money with nowhere to go. Um, on a net basis, the, um, the surge in US money supply, we haven't even had the figures out for March yet for the um, UK or for Europe. 
So, um, and February was, you know, just a normal month. Um, but in the US, um, we just had the numbers out and um, broad money supply, this is M3, was uh, growing 12% year on year. That's not quite unprecedented, but it's certainly unprecedented for the non-inflationary era, which tells you something about the likely inflation impact of this sort of behavior. And Jim said he wasn't going to mention gold. Well, I don't know when the time is to mention gold, but um, gold goes up when people start diluting the hell out of their fiat currencies. And that's what's happening. I, I have never been a gold bug, never really understood gold in a general sense. But in this environment, it's the absolutely logical place to, to go because they're going to be printing money. And that money is, uh, if you if we saw this before in QE, especially in countries that aren't um, the reserve currency like the US. So in the, in the UK, for example, we printed in the end 25% more money than we started with at the beginning of the crisis. And sterling went down on a trade weighted basis by 25%. So, you know, if you double the, the amount of money in circulation, all other things being equal, you're going to halve the value of your currency. And uh, if everyone's doing it, which currency do you buy? Well, you buy the only currency that can't be diluted, um, which is precious metals. So after the, the financial crisis, um, we, had, we had inflation of a kind. We had financial asset price inflation. Do we think that this time around, we're actually going to get real inflation? I think so, because I think you're going to get this time around. See, last time around, what we had was we had a backdrop that was very deflationary. I'm not saying we haven't got one that's very deflationary now, but we had a backdrop that was very deflationary and an extremely inflationary policy response that kind of netted out to not much change. A lot of people have made the mistake of looking at QE and saying, ah, nothing much happened, as if uh, it didn't, it's not really a dangerous tool to wield and, and, it, and it doesn't really do much. But, and they also look at Japan, which seems to have done tons of it, uh, and they say, look, you see, it doesn't do anything. But it's very important to realize that in the case of Japan, for example, although the balance sheet of the Bank of Japan ballooned massively, um, I mean, it's more than trebled in, in just the period since they adopted QQE in 2013, which is more like our QE. They're, they never managed to target money supply. So money supply in Japan never really grew. Therefore, inflation never really grew. And the yen never went down. It actually trended up. It's trended up for the last 30 years. Now, what we're talking about is a very different thing because it's a very aggressive expansion of the, of the central bank's balance sheet. But crucially, it's being targeted at expanding money supply. And if you expand money supply, then that's going to uh, negatively impact your bond market and, your, and your, the value of your currency. Uh, and of course, it, that means it's going to push up um, the cost of anything you import. And as Jim says, you've got all those um, basic commodities out there as well. Um, where pretty soon we might seeing, be seeing an increase in demand. But equally, you're going to find that the holders of those commodities are going to be demanding more and more of these highly diluted fiat currencies. So uh, the more we, the printing presses were, the higher prices will go. It's not really inflation. Think of it much more as the deflation of the value of your currency. The Weimar Republic, the famous hyperinflation, that wasn't a hyperinflation. That was a massive expansion of money supply that, of course, calls everybody to turn around and say, well, in that case, I don't want to hold that. I don't want to hold that, that currency if they're just going to print it like it's loo paper. So as soon as anyone had that currency, they immediately tried to transfer it for something, anything. And that's a, that's a very extreme version of what we are now facing. You can't pay everybody. We start off with a deflationary hit, so everybody gets sent home from their jobs. That means demand crashes. But don't forget, they all supplied things as well. So the supply also crashes. Now governments stepped in around the world with their various versions of giving everyone some fake money. 
you can still go out and, and get 80% of your salary. You can still keep your staff on even though they're doing nothing, et cetera. So they're alleviating the demand destruction, which is deflationary, but there's nothing they can do about the supply disruption, which is very inflationary. So they've just turned what was a deflationary impact into an inflationary one. And what about the outlook for bonds, given that most governments are now looking essentially insolvent? <laughs> well, not I, insolvent. They're not because they can print as much money because as they can print their own money. So, so therefore, they can artificially try very hard to control bond prices and via that bond yields. Bear in mind that although they've, they've managed to con everyone into believing that QE made bond yields go down, because that's what they said it would do, it actually did the exact opposite, and that's a matter of record, so you can see. And it, and it made uh, bond yields go up quite a lot. So I think bonds look pretty damn dangerous at this environment. But if the governments are going to step in and artificially manipulate the markets, which they're also incentivized to do with bonds, then the way that'll happen is that they'll print more and more money in their attempts to buy bonds off everyone else who's busy dumping them as fast as they can. And what that'll do is crash the currency. So you may see bond yields and bond performance not doing too badly, but if you tread on one part of the balloon, the other part has to bulge. And if they do that, the bit that will bulge is the value of the currency. So the, bit, the thing I feel most confident about is that fiat currencies are going to get diluted, which means you need to rush to the safety of a precious metal. Completely agree. I just want to talk about some of the, um, the stock market stuff and then get Victor and James to comment on, on what I'm going to say. So as you can see, the S&P in the last month is up 24%. It represents a forward PE ratio of 21 based on the best estimates that are out there, which I think are estimates that have come down basically rather than go up. So it may be even higher as a forward PE. That's not particularly cheap. The UK, based on crunched earnings, is much more attractive in terms of valuation. And obviously the FTSE contains a lot more international companies that have scale and foreign earnings that are attractive. And so the UK relatively looks attractive and the currency, to my mind at least, is undervalued, especially with what James has just been say, saying about the vast quantity of money that's being printed in the United States at the moment. And the yield, even though banks have been forced uh, to cut their dividends, which I think is terrible, but they have been forced to cut them. They're perfectly capable of paying those dividends without any uh, pressure on their balance sheets. But those dividends are deferred rather than lost forever. And the UK yield is 5.3%. So I'm just going to run through a few of the companies that I think you might want to consider very, very briefly. One is Alibaba, which is the Chinese version of Amazon, may even be better than Amazon. It's not as highly rated as Amazon because SoftBank, which as we all know has got troubles, is a big shareholder and, and uh, is likely to liquidate some of its shares in Alibaba. So that's one to watch. I think it's a really good company going forward and the Chinese economy potentially could be much bigger than the US economy. And internet penetration in terms of retail sales is even higher. Then we turn to the oil companies. Now, it's interesting that the price of oil last night, as some of you will know, went to minus $38 for the May contract. That was based on the fact that there's no storage uh, in the world, but no storage left in the world to hold the oil that carries on being produced. But nonetheless, the uh, big oil major companies, and um, the, the two that are listed here are Royal Dutch and BP, hardly moved in the stock market. And the reason is that because they make money at every end of the oil and gas spectrum. And we are going to carry on using oil and gas, albeit 20% less worldwide in the current quarter, but it'll go back up and, you know, India and 
China will grow again and the consumption of oil will go up. I don't know what the ultimate price of oil is, but uh, it's going to be higher than the current level. And those companies are very high dividend yielders. They may cut their dividends in the short term, but I would say they're great buys in the current market. Even if we start going down again, and that's a possibility because the market's gone up a lot, um, I would say you could buy these, shut your eyes, and in five years' time, they should have done quite well. Similarly with the banks, uh, and the bank I want to highlight is Lloyds Bank, which is by far the strongest bank in the UK, major bank in, in the UK, uh, yields prospectively, that's for next year, around 7%, which is remarkable when you consider if you put your money in Lloyds, you get nothing on deposit, or more or less nothing. And then the other ones that I kind of like are the insurance companies, which have also been beaten up, but not to the same extent. And the best of those are Phoenix and uh, Royal Sun Alliance or RSA Insurance. And then we've got uh, Delta Airlines as the best of the US airlines. And the US airlines are interesting because they're not like the airlines were in the financial crisis. They are much more driven by the linked credit cards and the air mile schemes than they then were. And indeed, I think that the airline loyalty schemes are worth more than the airline themselves now because they've got so many embedded members uh, that the value of those could be, if you value that on a sort of MasterCard or PayPal type basis, could be a lot higher than the airlines themselves. And IAG is our own one with BA and Vueling and Iberia amongst their holdings. IAG has said it doesn't want government aid and it doesn't want government aid because it's got cash, probably enough cash to last it for another six months. Uh, and it wants to see Norwegian and in particular Virgin go bust so it can pick up uh, Virgin slots at Heathrow Airport um, and then become a quasi-monopolist. Uh, and then among packaged goods, I like Kraft Heinz. It's a stock that's held up very well. Uh, and in the pharma area, which is my own area of so-called expertise, you know, GSK has done well in this, uh, in this crisis and probably will continue because as uh, Victor, I think, said that they are, they're probably the largest vaccine manufacturer along with Sanofi in the world and they, they will continue to, to churn out the cash. Gilead has been, for those who ever read my columns, has been one of my number one picks over the last year. It's, it's up in this crisis and it's up because Gilead has a drug that may have efficacy against COVID-19. We don't know really, but they're engaging in a very big trial now. And Gilead is generally a good company, but I think it's at the top end of its range and you could bank profits there and reinvest them in some of these other ones that have been very badly beaten up. So as always in financial markets, there are opportunities. And I think the opportunities are in the more cyclical stocks at the moment where they will return to dividend paying, where fundamentally their balance sheets are not heavily constrained and where they're leaders in their respective fields. So don't despair. And if you have some money, I would start constructing a portfolio now. None of us know if the markets are going to retest the lows, if there's going to be you know, another crisis. We just don't know. It's normal after a big bear that you do get another downward leg. But we, we don't know. And that's partly because of what James was saying, the massive injection of liquidity by governments around the world. And that will flow through to inflation. Of course, I, di I didn't mention gold because I've banged on about gold for the last year or so. Gold is absolutely your safe haven. Buy it, buy gold mining stocks, buy gold derivatives, buy ETFs that are strong, buy anything related to gold or silver for that matter, and you'll at least retain your purchasing power over the next five years, which is going to be difficult considering we're going to move into an inflationary period. So that's, that's my little list of uh, stock market stuff, and I'd be very interested to know what Victor and James think about that. Uh, Jim, I think there's some brilliant ideas there. Um, 
can I just say that the special report that James Faulkner and I wrote, which is still available, by the way, on the Master Investor website, we put together our so-called antiviral portfolio. And what we did, we said there are three basic categories of stock, if you, if you wish to think in this way. There are those stocks which will positively benefit from the lockdowns and from the extraordinary decline in economic activity. And we've seen Amazon reach new highs this week. Netflix is at an all-time high. I believe it has a higher market capitalization than Exxon Corporation, which is an extraordinary thing. Um, albeit maybe, maybe it's not so extraordinary given that oil prices have gone negative. Whole, whole slew of other companies which are doing very well. Tesco, the UK supermarkets, Zoom, you mentioned, telecoms providers. We've only just begun to realize how totally dependent we are on being connected uh, with a decent broadband signal. Uh, so, some of us have better connections than others, right, James? Um, mm -hmm. Second category are really those, those stocks which are likely to rebound once some degree of normality is resumed. And I've already told you why I'm a little bit skeptical that we will ever get back to full normality, but certainly we will, we will get out of the present iron lockdowns that are affecting basically half the population of the earth uh, right now, and there will be a relaxation. How long it will take is something we can discuss. And then there's a third category of stock, which will, for, for which things will never be the same again. So basically, um, I'm putting airlines in the latter category, albeit that what Jim said about some opportunities such as for um, key players like IAG is, I'm sure, correct. But timing will be of the essence here because when those stocks will be able to recover is something that we just don't really know. And can I just say that um, looking at these stock ideas, you know, uh, the recession hasn't happened yet. Uh, I think technically France is in recession, but then it was going into recession even before the pandemic kicked in. The earnings, the slew of earnings, um, negative earnings data hasn't happened yet. Uh, we think it will. And in some ways, the market crash hasn't happened yet. I mean, we had a very, very severe um, market downturn in the second and third week of, of, of March, since when a lot of markets have, uh, have recovered. I mean, the NASDAQ was back, was it 8,650 uh, last night? So it's not, you know, so very far off, you know, it's high at the end of January of 9,300 something. So I, I, I think these are brilliant ideas, but let us be aware that um, there could be a, 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 another severe downturn in, in markets, which will take basically all stocks with them. And while I think that it's more, going, more likely going to be a, a U-shaped recovery, you have to bear in mind the downside risk that there could be an L-shaped recovery, maybe 20%, but basically a whole number of systemic fault lines will be triggered here. James Ferguson was talking about uh, monetary policy, and the European banking system is looking very fragile at the moment. The situation okay. in Europe... Um, thanks, Victor. I just want to see if James Ferguson's got anything to comment on, uh, on this one, and then um, I want to take some questions from the audience. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd agree with Victor. I mean, I, you know, I think um, what situations, I mean, as Warren Buffett put it, when the tide goes out, you get to see who's swimming without trunks. And, you know, bits of the, the world, 
global economy that are weak, fundamentally weak, like Europe in general and European banks more specifically, I think will be revealed to be in a lot of trouble. And, and that will require, you know, um, at the moment, there's a lot of resistance, particularly from Germany and the Netherlands towards money printing in Europe, because they think it'll all go, because uh, it will, <laughs> to Italy and, and to a lesser extent, Spain, Greece, Portugal, and the, the other usual suspects. And, uh, and they've, for a long time, they've fought against the implications of proper unity. Uh, and so that's going to come to a head for sure. I personally suspect that French banks are in the most trouble of all uh, compared to where people perceive them to be because they never really went through their crisis and they never really fessed up to their losses and they never really padded up their uh, their capital. Completely different story, really, to, to the Americans. Uh, the French have, have sort of followed more of a a kind of emboldened version of, of the Japanese scenario of waiting, not just waiting to be bailed out by time, but but actually actively throwing good money after bad to see if they can make that happen somehow. So I suspect um, some very nasty things will be revealed by these disruptions. One of the questions that someone posted um, was, you know, do we think the markets sort of absorbed the magnitude of the, the downturns in earnings revisions, etc.? I think one of the problems for equities, uh, which is why I keep emphasizing precious metals because I don't have any of this sort of problem, is the inherent volatility in the news flow. You know, we all know things are going to be bad, but that's quite different to know it from seeing it. Um, you know, Jim has quite rightly put up on his list yield and forward PE, but these numbers will become absolutely meaningless in the near term because firms will either be told to uh, stop paying dividends or they'll decide if no one else is, why should they for the time being? Maybe it's prudent not to. Uh, for the time being. Earnings in the very near term are going to be um, effectively zero for many, many com companies. So you're going to have to find different ways, as you often do at the bottom of downturns, to value companies. And I think given that difficulty, that means that equities could be extremely volatile. And what will therefore matter is the speed and aggression with which the authorities print money. Printing money is a purely nominal exercise. It, it merely inflates things. You don't generate anything real. But of course, um, share prices are like other prices, and, and we usually tend to care about them in a nominal way. So um, what happens to them will probably be determined by the, uh, by the money printing that's going on. We haven't even seen what that's been in the UK, but we kind of know it's going to be huge because we're bailing out so many people in terms of their salaries and their, and their businesses. So uh, the answer to the question about stock markets is that... Um, the best way to make money, if you look back historically, is to buy when the trouble makes the front pages of the white papers. And uh, it'll probably be the case this time. But um, if you ever do follow that advice, you will you are guaranteed to lose money in the near term, unless you think you found a way of spotting the very bottom. So it's a, it's a bravery um, game. And the best way to deal with it is to look at something and say, if I bought it today, would I be okay with the fact that I can't sell it for 10 years? And I think if it's something that you're very happy to, to live with, you know, 10 years out when we're well past this, you think it's going to survive and you think it's going to be good value, then that's the way to invest. But uh, in the near term, I would uh, encourage you more to get your precious metal position sorted first. And then you can decide whether you want to go uh, catching falling knives in the stock market. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, James. I, I, can, I absolutely agree with everything you said there. None of us know when the bottom of the stock market is and none of us really know with certainty or any degree of uh, sort of reasonable forecast what the earnings of some of these companies will be. 
uh, next year. But we can all agree, and I think we, Victor, you and I do agree, that bonds are a sell. They're not going up, and they may well go down sharply, particularly bonds related to Europe, and that gold and silver are a buy, and any derivatives thereof. I mean, I don't mean derivatives in the sense of options. I mean anything related to gold or silver mining. And uh, so, and that's enough. You know, in, in a way, we don't need to have 25 different ideas. You can do well if you just focus on a couple. And that's what I would, would endorse with your last point, which is, you know, just uh, uh, focus on a few things. And uh, as far as stocks are concerned, regard them as being five or 10 year investments and lock them away in a drawer. Now, in terms of currencies, uh, James is right that, you know, fiat currencies are being debased. I guess there's a relative play there as well. It's which one's being debased more than the others. And I'd be interested in your views, James, if the dollar has peaked and that we should be buying, for instance, the Swiss franc, the British pound, the uh, Japanese yen, obviously not the euro, because I still believe the euro zone will break up. And I think that's probably closer than it ever was before. But do you think the dollar has reached its peak? Um, my suspicion is it probably has. The dollar is always slightly tricky because it's also the world's reserve currency, which means if the panic gets big enough at any particular time, people run to the safe haven of the dollar. And therefore, it's not always a play purely on elements like how much money printing are they doing, etc. Um, I certainly think that the, imp the implications of what will happen to UK money supply, given the, the huge abandon with which... Um, the uh, Chancellor's talking about um, sending everybody checks implies that you know sterling is going to get diluted um, further. But it's very hard. You know what we're doing here is speculating on what the political decisions will be and uh, how they will you know turn monetary policy around, whether they'll pursue it with aggression or not. Uh, the Japanese have proved themselves over the last thirty years utterly incapable of expanding their money supply, and given the fact that they're unlikely. It's not impossible, but they're unlikely to learn anything new in the next five years. I would say the yen is a good safe haven, apart from um, the, the, the precious metals. But with nearly everybody else, the problem is that if they see everybody else doing it, they're going to be tempted to print money themselves and keep their electorates uh, acquiescent. A um, Asia might be interesting from this point of view. The Asian crisis is still relatively fresh in many people's memories, which means that the Asian countries are less likely to think they can get away with um, printing money and threatening the value of their currencies without there being a nasty uh, reaction. And therefore, Asian currencies may be the place to look for safe, uh, relatively safe bonds, et cetera. But uh, yes, I, I would certainly um, be very careful about the West in terms of the value of currencies and therefore of bonds. Uh, and I think that means that you, would, you do want to be looking at things like um, Stocks, and I was quite interested to see a couple of banks on um, Jim's uh, list of, of uh, investments. Because one thing which I think is probably true is that most people's default position this time round is, oh, here we go again with the banks. We better get out of them; they'll be they'll be terrible. Some of the banks are down at, at the lowest points they hit after the banking crisis in terms of share prices as well. But it's worth bearing in mind that you know this is not this one's not a bank crisis. It may turn into one, but uh, frankly, in almost all cases, banks are lending to people because they are being underwritten explicitly, or at the very least, strongly implicitly by their local governments. And I suspect the banks will come out of this one okay. I mean, how many firms are going to be allowed to go under owing the banks money 
given the fact that this is, at the end of the day, this is not the, the virus that's doing this to us. It's, it's government policy response to the virus that's doing this to us. And that opens up a whole range of quite interesting legal gray areas. And I think that, that after the last time, governments will be once bitten, twice shy, and they will, they will be listening very closely to the banks. will be saying, we can, we can be here, we can help you out, but you need to underwrite us properly this time. Okay, thanks guys. I'm just going to take a few questions from the audience now before we finish. And this is an interesting one given what we've just been saying about gold. Um, what does the panel think about the prospects for cryptocurrencies? Why bother? If you've got gold, uh, and uh, <laughs> why bother with uh, the various cryptocurrencies? Because they haven't really done, as far as I'm aware, very well in this particular crisis. Their main use is to hide transactions, as far as I can see. I still don't see the validity of them. I've got friends who believe in them very heavily, but I, I, I'm not a big believer. So um, I would uh, just stick to the gold and silver. I don't understand the cryptocurrencies. So in my opinion, I can't invest in something that I don't understand. But I, from what I vaguely understand, I think it's something like 20% of all cryptocurrencies get stolen fraudulently. They just disappear, sometimes along with the person who was running the supposedly safe deposit box that they were in. So it, it, it staggers me that anyone goes anywhere near mm. cryptocurrencies, but then, you know, maybe they understand them. Well, I, I was going to say it's great news for criminals, isn't it? But I suppose theoretically, the big advantage of crypto is that the stock of, of money is fixed. And therefore, what is happening to fiat currencies, namely in terms of governments printing vast quantities of, 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 of new money, cannot happen uh, to crypto. So um, it could be seen as a hedge against inflation. But that said, I wouldn't touch it. You just don't know where, where it is and where it's been. We're probably all too old to understand them. We'll stick to the tried and tested formula. Regarding vaccines, does it make it viable that companies on AIM are raising lots of money for potential vaccines, or are they just being opportunistic? Okay, so I think the COVID-19 chip has sailed. I think that... Uh, despite what uh, someone was saying earlier on, that there will be a vaccine. It may come out of Oxford University uh, with Sarah Gilbert's team. She's got a, she's a very strong record. And she thinks she's got an 80% certainty of producing something in September with her team. That would be great for the UK, by the way. Or it could come out of Moderna, which is a US biotech company that has made remarkable progress in producing a COVID-19 vaccine. Or it could come out of China, but there will be a vaccine. J&J &J are talking about making a billion doses in the Janssen facility in Belgium of one that they are having close development. And then there's the retroviral drugs such as Remdesivir, which Gilead produces, that may provide a better form of treatment. What I will say is that from my ex extensive, albeit non-doctor uh, uh, reading, that you don't want to go on a ventilator if you get this disease. The ventilators are actually, which were the first things that we were supposed to make in Dyson factories and uh, car factories, uh, are actually a very high contributor to mortality for people who are put on them. You want a normal oxygen mask or a CPAP at best, but you don't want to go on um, a ventilator. But I'd say that the economic thing uh, for this COVID-19 has sailed. There are a thousand companies that are clamoring to get government subvention in the United States, probably hundreds in the UK, move on. What's really interesting, however, is companies that would get involved in 
future pandemic response, which could be antimicrobial resistance responses, pandemic responses generally, uh, you know, better masks, better equipment, and, and of course, uh, creators of vaccine platforms that quickly could be mobilized to uh, produce vaccines against novel viruses. So the response in the future, I think, is the basis of a potentially great industry in the United Kingdom. But for now, I think the game, the ship has sailed. So to my mind, I don't know which one of these companies, but there is a company out there that's got something that will be of enormous assistance with COVID-19. Okay. Um, next question. Given what the panel's been saying about inflation, what is the outlook for interest rates? Um, the, the answer to that question depends a lot on financial repression. All other things being equal, it would be, um, it would be warning you that interest rates are going to go higher than anything that um, our younger listeners or viewers would have, would have seen in their lifetimes. However, it is quite possible for governments, and let's, let's be honest, they've ridden roughshod over pretty much every concept we had of, of acceptable behaviour, or at least acceptable non-centrally planned behaviour, so that you know there is there is the potential, like there is during wars um, and in the post-war periods, to control interest rates and to control bond yields. That doesn't mean, though, that you're not going to find that that the same problem in other areas. So yes, you might still be able to afford to pay your mortgage because your your mortgage rate hasn't gone up, but you might find it very difficult in that environment to pay for anything else because the currency is collapsed owing to the financial repression, which means that the, everything else you're buying is costing a fortune. You should probably think and act like interest rates are going to go up, even if they don't technically go up because of uh, repression. Yeah, can I just add to that, uh, James Ferguson, that why did interest rates go to zero and why did they remain there for nearly 10 years? I mean, that's the most extraordinary economic episode and nobody really can explain it. But one possible obviously a, a, a approaches, but it happened at a time when banks were rapidly deleveraging. Their balance sheets were getting smaller. And it, you, you, you gave a, a survey of monetary policy earlier. We could, we could talk for hours about that. But what's happening now is that all of, that, um, all of those assets are now going onto the balance sheets of the central banks rather than the commercial banks. And you have a situation, I think now, the top four central banks amount to about 40% of, uh, of, of their own economies, of, of total GDP. So the question is, how big can central bank balance sheets get before that effectively becomes inflationary? And you know, if you, I, I've always said there's actually a limit to monetary policy because there's only a finite stock of bonds that central banks can buy. So there must come a point where you know, the, the, there appear to be diminishing returns from monetary policy and at some point uh, monetary policy will become entirely ineffective and at that point interest rates I think might trend upwards but honestly who knows I wish if I could answer that I'd win the Nobel Prize. Well I was just going to say I mean, there's a couple of um, nuances to that interest rates were zero because that's the rate at which the, the central bank is lending to the banks but the rate that the banks were charging their customers was nowhere near zero in fact uh, in 2010, which is what, that's uh, basically four years after the crisis had hit, Citibank, uh, just because it's the numbers on the top of my head, was still charging an average of 8.15% 
in a zero interest rate environment or near zero interest rate environment to its um, average borrower. So the fact of the matter is that uh, when the banks were in trouble, they were in trouble because they didn't have any capital and they had people who were not able to uh, repay their loans or, or service their loans, but they were not cutting interest rates to other people. So we tend to make the mistake of thinking that interest rates are what the central bank says they are. And that's really the point I was trying to make earlier. They may tell us that rates are low, but that doesn't mean you can borrow low rates. Okay. Next question, which is related to what we've just been talking about. Any thoughts on what might happen to the UK housing market and by de facto the house builders? Well, house builders on the face of it look very cheap, but then, you know, they so <laughs> at the top of cycles, don't they? One has to suppose that when the property market becomes unfrozen, at the moment I understand that transactions have fallen by 90-something percent, that uh, house prices will go down, particularly in, in London. But then we get back to the point that uh, all three of us have actually agreed on, which is that uh, inflation will tend to put up, push up the price of assets, and property is one of those. And uh, so I would expect that an initial 20% fall in prime property, maybe 10% fall in other property around the country, and then a, a recovery accelerate, accelerating into the period of higher inflation. Certainly before this crisis, property prices were yielding almost nothing. Um, you know, big boxes, logistic type companies were less than 4%. Uh, off, offices were typically 3 to 4%. I mean, obviously there are exceptions to that. The only area that was completely bombed out was the retail sector which will remain bombed out, presumably. Uh, and rental properties were about 3%. All of those are inadequate returns going into an inflationary period. So one would think that both rents and prices will go up over a period of time. But now, today is not the time to go into the market. I'd also add that the, um, the outlook for um, existing house prices is probably a lot better than the outlook is for house builders. House builders have a land bank they paid for back in the day when... Um, you know, their, their land was more expensive than they expected things to be good. They're now going to be bringing in um, raw materials either that have gone up because, well, mainly that will go up because the currency will go down. So if they're importing anything, anything that's imported um, is likely to be much more expensive. So you're going to be, you're going to have the house builders going to a more impoverished buyer and needing to charge them more money to cover their costs, which is not good for margins. So house builders as a rule are to be avoided when they look incredibly cheap <laughs> because they're deep cyclicals. All deep cyclicals are the same. You know, you have to buy them when they look atrocious and not when they look cheap. Can I add to that? There's a lot of dis-saving going on right now with um, people furloughed and, and self-employed people who are waiting for grants that haven't even come through yet with the result that a lot of people will be dipping into their nest eggs at the, at the, at the lower rung of the, the, the property ladder such that they won't have sufficient funds to go into the market after all and will defer their initial purchase decision. And that means that the entire property market will, will, will become even more sclerotic than it is already. I mean, even, even once the, you know, the, the, the lockdown is, is relaxed. So I don't think the outlook for residential property is, is good, at least in the short term. And this is the last question because we're already running 15 minutes over time, but it's a controversial one to finish on. Do the panel think Donald Trump will be re-elected and what are the implications for the markets? Okay, I'll go first. Uh, yes, he will be re-elected. The choice confronting the American population is not a particularly good one. 
I think he'll be re-elected because he's very good at talking to his base. And even though there's economic dislocation in the United States, presumably all this pump priming will, or printing of money rather, will result in uh, some improvement in the economy by uh, November. But more importantly, his opponent is just such a weak opponent with you know, just all sorts of cognitive issues, we won't go into the details, uh, and a lack of clarity, particularly at this time of crisis, that he's just the, the worst, he's like a Jeremy Corbyn type choice for the Labour Party, equivalent for the, uh, for, the, for the Democrats, not in policy terms, but in terms of public appeal. I think what he really should do is co-opt that Andrew Cuomo, who said a very good uh, correct, <laughs> and, um, but he said he won't, he won't attempt to be drafted in as the, as the candidate at the convention. Um, so, yeah, so Donald Trump will be elected, but let's face it, uh, you know, have his policies been bad for the United States? I mean, apart from the corona crisis, can you point to anything that, or can anyone point to anything that's been disastrous in the United States? I can't. I think it will just be more of the same, basically, which is uh, him blustering away, but fundamentally the economy remaining relatively robust will be damaged in the short term. Yeah, I think we forget in this part of the world that the, the way that the US political system is set up is pretty specifically to prevent the president being able to do very much, as Obama discovered to his uh, chagrin. And so basically speaking, having um, a kind of bit of an unreliable buffoon running the country, although a little embarrassing on the national stage, he can't do much damage at home. We, we underestimate how much damage at home he can, uh, we overestimate rather how much damage he can do at home. And he keeps those, some of those pesky foreigners on their toes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, you know, unless, unless you can see, you've either got to imagine Republicans voting for a Democrat. And the Democratic race this time was as close to Marxist as the Americans have ever gone to. So I suspect that no floating Republican, well, even Joe Biden being at the milder end, is still, is still a very extreme bunch. And I suspect getting any Republican to vote for them will be very hard. And the incumbent always seems to have a bit of an advantage, especially after a sort of kind of bit of a brutal sort of uh, campaign for who's going to be the um, Democrat. So I agree with Jim. I think it'll probably go to Trump, kind of by default. Yeah, well, I, I will third that judgment. I think Trump will win because his anti-globalization agenda and his China bashing agenda will have been vindicated in the eyes of his supporters and a large number of Americans. Biden is not a strong candidate, to put it mildly. He, he has many weaknesses. He doesn't seem to have very much of a, of a grasp of, of policy. He, of course, he'll win over the African, African-American contingent and all the true blue Democrats. But um, on the campaign tra- trail, Trump will thrash him. And Trump, let us be honest, is a very good campaigner. And he's, he's actually a... a, you know, a, a a very vibrant campaigner. So let's not underestimate him. What will be the impact on the markets? Well, I guess there will be a Trump bounce once again, and that um, you know Wall Street will love it. But whether that will have you know, medium-term uh, reverberation is another question. Okay, uh, I think we'll leave it there. I'd just like to say thank you to all our panelists, and uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Stay James, if I might just say very, very quickly, as the uh, owner of Master Investor, I want to thank all the people at Master Investor for organizing this. I want to thank James Ferguson and Victor Hill for being you know, such outstanding contributors to the greater knowledge that I think we've all got from today. And I want to thank everyone at Master, all the participants today for 
for joining us. I, if this carries on longer, we'll do another one uh, because Master Investor is there to help and educate and provide important information to uh, the retail investing public. And I continue to support it and I will continue to support it. And as, as you said, James, or maybe Tim said earlier on, December the 5th, I'm sure we'll be back in action and we, we're going to have a fabulous show. So um, thank you, everyone. Good stuff. Take care, everybody. Don't forget, you can access more great content, including Master Investor magazine at masterinvestor.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by hitting the subscribe button and by leaving a review. If you've got any suggestions about who you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Thanks for listening.